I got an email from somebody yesterday morning that asked me what I was preaching on uh, this morning, and uh, I was in the process of changing my sermon, and so I just sent a note back to him preaching on the election of 2016, and uh, he responded, oh, the apocalypse is upon us. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I want to... I, I just want to get serious for a moment or two because, brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart that we are in an acutely dangerous moment in the history of our nation. Some may not agree, it's okay. But I've been watching our surroundings very closely uh, from the moment I stepped into this pulpit 16 years ago. I've been trying to see what's happening in the culture and, and the change that has occurred over the last 16 years has been breathtakingly fast. And it just seems like every time I look up, every time I look at the news, it, it's accelerating faster and faster and faster. We are having conversations today that we would never have dreamed we would have had just five years ago. So we're not going to look at Joshua 5 today. Uh, I, we'll do that next week. But something's been weighing on my heart so heavily over the last couple of weeks and, and it's been a burden that I just couldn't deny. I finally decided that it was time to, to hit the pause button be, before Tuesday and share with you what I see as either a very dangerous crisis that is looming before us or, or a sparkling opportunity. And I want to look at how we can together determine which of those two things it's going to be. So let me, let me just go back and tell you how I think we got here, and then we'll talk about what here is and what we may be able to do. it. Back in 1979, we watched Jerry Falwell start a political movement. Now, I got a chance to, uh, I was invited down to Richmond, Virginia a couple years ago. Um, I was able to, I, I was to deliver an invocation for the opening of the Senate of the state. And Jerry Falwell was a speaker and I got a chance to have breakfast with him. And I, I, got a, I spent about 40 minutes with him over breakfast. And I got to tell you something, that breakfast with him changed my opinion of him. He was one of the most lovely, gracious men I've ever met. But he spent that 40 minutes trying to convince me that I had been given the pulpit for political use, and I just wasn't there. I'm not there today. And it was funny because when they called me up for prayer, I went up to pray, and I came and sat down. They were in the middle of the introduction for, for Mr. Falwell, and he looked at me and he said, did, did I get you? And I said, no. And he said, well, if you listen to me, maybe we'll talk again at the end of my talk. I said, sure. So he went out and he talked for 40, 45 minutes or so. He came back. He said, do I have you? I said, no, I, I just don't believe that that's what I was given the pulpit for. Maybe you were called to this. I don't feel I'm called to that. And so he, he was very graciously said, well, I'll be praying for you. And, and so back in 1979, that's the man that started a movement called the Moral Majority. Now, some of you are old enough to remember that. Not all of us are. You know, the intentions of the Moral Majority were good. It was pro-life. It was pro-Bible. It was pro-Christian. It essentially supported a Christian platform. 
the idea to have a positive Christian influence in politics, uh, to provide a Christian voice in our government. I think that's good. That's not a bad thing. I believe it is proper, I want to make myself clear on this, to work within the system, the system that we have, and, and to support it whenever possible, particularly in godly matters. We want to be outspoken about them. Christians in politics can be an influence for the gospel. They can be examples of godly and moral leadership. And to be honest with you, I think we need all of that we can get right now. But we run into problems when we allow our political leanings to interfere with our commitment to proclaim and portray the gospel. And I've told you this before. The only reason that the church exists on the face of the earth is to proclaim the gospel. We have been changed, we have been transformed so that we can tell other people that they can be changed and they can be transformed. We've been redeemed, we've been delivered from our sins, we've been moved from people who are dead to people who are alive by the work of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross and that's why the church is here. The church can do a whole lot of other things and it can do a whole lot of other good things, and there's nothing wrong with them, but the primary reason we're here is for the gospel. And we need to keep that in mind, because somewhere along the line, between 1979 and now, a whole lot of people in the church, I'm talking about the Evangelical Church of America, a whole lot of people came to believe that the answer to the problems of a backsliding culture lay in Washington, D.C. Oh, they did it with their Bibles open. They were looking at them, most of them. But their trust in what would change the nation was frequently placed in a candidate that, that seemed to mouth anything that sounded even vaguely Christian. And for millions of people, at some point, the biblical platform was exchanged for a political platform. And anyone leading that particular political platform that they advocated became their guy, regardless of his personal beliefs and the way he lived his life. So increasingly, parts of the church in America began to think, and I want to choose my words very carefully here, they began to think that being partisan was being Christian. Now, the reason I say partisan is because, oddly enough, there are people on all sides of all political issues that believe this to be true. The Democrats believe that being a Democrat is Christian. The Republicans believe that being a Republican is Christian. Not everybody, but a lot of people. A lot of people. And that's where things get tripped up. Because along with that idea that being partisan is being Christian came the idea that anything or anyone not of their party is not Christian. Anyone who's walked through this for the last 30 years knows what I'm talking about. And, you know, once that idea took hold, once it percolated for a while, it morphed into another idea that anything not partisan was evil. And that's when those parts of the church that embraced those ideas began to lose the gospel. 
I think it's important to note that not all Christians thought that. I know a lot of you didn't. But there was a growing and very vocal segment of the church that thought that way and today thinks that way. And therein, brothers and sisters, is our problem for today. Thoughts like those have helped produce the campaign that we've witnessed over the last year, year and a half. A campaign that the first time I can remember was so divisive, even more divisive than the great hanging Chad debate of the Bush-Gore uh, election. I, I mean, you remember how serious we thought that was? Don't you long for those days when we could make some sense out of everything? An election, a campaign so divisive that I, I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure that I can see a clear path for healing for our nation once this election is concluded. I don't know that, that we can bring it back together next Wednesday morning when we wake up and have a new president-elect. There's been so much anger on both sides. I, I, I don't know that we can fix that. The anger's there. I mean, when is the last time you heard somebody talk about the issues? I know why I shouldn't vote for one or why I shouldn't vote for the other and what a rotten person one is and what a rotten person the other is. I have no idea what any of these people are going to do for us. Maybe you do. That's fine. Okay? But we have to recognize that the anger is there. And come Wednesday morning... There are a whole lot of people, regardless of what side you are on, that are going to be angry over this. So the question for the church is not how do we diffuse the anger, but the question for us today is what do we do? What part will the church play in healing our nation? Now, I'm not totally sure that the entire church can play a part. Because it has, for the most part, sided with one party or the other so much that it may have lost its credibility with the other. And along with that lost credibility may be the lost opportunity to do the one thing that the church is called to do, preach the gospel. I don't know, I don't know if the evangelical church can play a part in the healing, but I do know this. We can. Warrington Bible Fellowship can. I think we've been prepared for this. I think that we're ready for this. I believe that churches like Warrington Bible Fellowship can not only be part of delivering the USA from a dangerous division, but part of, of a sparkling opportunity, not a dangerous crisis. So I'll tell you how. But before we get to how we're going to do this, I want to remind you of a few things that we know to be biblically true. We know these are unequivocal truths. Number one, God is in control of the White House. Somebody say amen, please. Okay, God is in control of the White House. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 in your Bible. While you're turning there, let me give you the background of Daniel chapter 2. When we first meet Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, uh, he's in fear of his life. He's living in Babylon. He's under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a, and he's a bad king. He's an evil guy. 
Uh, Daniel was living in Jerusalem under King Jehoiakim, who was another bad king of Judah. Uh, but Jehoiakim got captured by Nebuchadnezzar and taken away, and most of the people in Jerusalem did as well. So Daniel is now in Jerusalem under Babylonian rule. Daniel was a very smart guy, probably a young guy. His wisdom came to the attention of the king, but he never really got integrated into the king's court. And the king was having these dreams, and they were bothering him, and the king called on all of his wise men, except for the new ones, like Daniel, uh, to interpret his dreams, and they couldn't do it. He wouldn't tell them what the dreams were. He would just stand the wise men in front of him and say, tell me what my dreams are about, and they would go, this is impossible. The king got angry, and he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon, and that would have included Daniel. So by the time we get to Daniel 2, there's a whole world of trouble going on. The, the, trouble, uh, the Jews are in trouble. Babylon's in trouble. The wise men are in trouble. There's trouble for Daniel in particular. He's immersed in a culture that he doesn't agree with. It is hostile to him, and the king is now against him, and he feels like he's, his life is on the line. It really is not too different a situation than we face today. Look, look what Daniel does about this situation. See it in chapter, uh, verse 17 of Daniel 2. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. He went to his friends and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel prayed. He went to his friends, he got them together, and he prayed. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel gets together with his friends, and he prays. He doesn't form a political action committee. He doesn't write up a bunch of signs and go out on the streets. He doesn't post what the bad king is doing on Facebook. He doesn't tweet the injustice of his situation. He doesn't do any of those things. He prays. He prays, and he gets his friends to pray. And look what he prays. Pray that God would have mercy on us. He doesn't pray, God, smite the king. Praise God, preserve me. Isn't that one of Scott's main points from last week? That the way the church defends itself against the enemy is through prayer? Daniel shows us all the way back in in his book. And look what his prayer says about God. This is, this is worth the price of admission right here. In verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. You thought you changed your clock this morning. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Did you hear that? He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. It's an incredible statement. Daniel, in his prayer to be delivered from the king, says, Lord, I know you put him in place. And if he's going to come down, it's going to be by your hand, not mine. 
Later on, here, here's another incredible thing. In chapter 4 of Daniel, God speaks directly to Nebuchadnezzar. God speaks to the evil king. Catch that, okay? Goes to him in a dream, a holy visitation. And during that dream, judgment is, is assessed on the king. And we hear Nebuchadnezzar's words in Daniel 4, verse 17. The sentence, he's saying the sentence that was, that was levied upon me is by decree of the watchers. He doesn't know who these people in the dream are. They're, they're people who watch. The decision by the word of the holy ones. He doesn't know who, know who they are, but he knows they're holy. He knows there's something pure about them. He knows there's something godly about them. To the end that the living may know that the Most High, listen, this is by the words of Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, okay, John, so God put Nebuchadnezzar in. That doesn't mean he put all the kings in place. Daniel isn't the only book that demonstrates God's authority over all the governments of the world. Paul tells us in Romans, in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I know not all of us like that, but let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Any authority that exists anywhere in the world has been instituted by God. So we see that God puts leaders in their place, and you know what? I, I've had to process this for a long time. I know how difficult that is. We'll talk about how difficult it is, but I want to show you something else before we move on to that because it gets more difficult because we find out that God is sovereign over those leaders' behavior. Listen to this. Proverbs 12.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What do we even do with that? Listen, it doesn't say that God's responsible for what they do. It doesn't say that God makes them do evil things. But this sure makes things get interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> doesn't mean that everything a leader does is good. Very clearly there are leaders who do evil. I mean, we see the bad kings throughout the Old Testament. We've seen bad leaders in our history. It does mean, however, that whatever a leader does, God will use for his glory and our good. We have to see this, because as soon as we understand what the scriptures say, we start processing this in a manner that's very contradictory. We say things like, well, what about this guy? What about Mile? What about Stalin? What, what, about, what about Hitler? What about all the despots of history? Did God put them in place? God wouldn't be responsible for that. We rail against this. And I don't think we understand that God says that everything he does is for a reason. How many times have we gone over Romans chapter 8? Listen, and we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God removes kings. God sets up kings. And it seems, in particular, when it comes to this election, that there are a whole lot of people that believe that God is sovereign over everything except in an election. The verse tells us whoever sits in the Oval Office on November 9th is under God's authority and accountable to him. This doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're godly people. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a godly person. Israel and Judah certainly had their share of ungodly kings. But each one of them, godly or ungodly, were in their positions and were accountable to God, just like the next president will be. Jesus knew this. I mean, right there at the end of his ministry, didn't he tell Pilate, didn't he say to Pilate in John 19.11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above? The Roman governor, the pagan ruler over Jerusalem, the only authority he had came from above. God is in charge of the White House, loved ones. Things are not spiraling out of control. We, we may get uncomfortable with who occupies it. I understand that. But we must never lose sight of the fact that God has a plan on all of this. And they come Wednesday morning, God will be sitting on his throne. God will have sovereign authority over the United States and the presidency and over you and me that things haven't gone off track, that God is going to use this, whatever it is, somehow for his glory and for our good. So if that's true, then we should never question who wins. We should never start complaining about how the votes were counted or what happened or who said what and what accusation flew here and there. We should Instead, we should sit down on Wednesday morning and say, Father in heaven, what is it you want me to learn from this election? What is it you're trying to teach me in this election? Because I know that your plan for me is good. And I'm having a rough time seeing that good right now. It's okay. David did the same thing, didn't he? David would go before the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated, but I repent. <laughs> that needs to be us. Lord, we don't get it, but we repent. Teach us, O oh Lord. Show us what you want us to learn from this. Here's another thing we need to keep in mind. In spite of how things look on a cultural front, in spite of how things look on the legislative front, the church is not going away. The church isn't going away. The church is not threatened. Now, we know this because the true church, the body of Christ, made up of the faithful ones, the ones that have been regenerated by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the ones that call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, the church, we know that it will endure forever. 
The church is there at the end times. And it will be in heaven forever. It may suffer, it may be maligned, but it will endure. Now, how do we know this? We know this because the church, listen, is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And he's promised that the church would be with him forever. Now, let me lay this out for you step by step. We heard in John's gospel, this, this message, it should be a comfort for us, particularly today. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. Just believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. This is the language of betrothal. This is a promise of marriage. In the Jewish culture, it was binding. It's a promise, and it's a promise from God, and anyone who's read the Old Testament knows how faithful God is to his promises. He is 100% faithful, uh, unerring, uh, unrelenting, faithful in his promises. And in John, we hear that Jesus promises to come for his bride. So, Pastor Scott showed us in Ephesians chapter 5 that the church is the bride that Jesus is coming for. Listen to this, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And in verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Christ is coming for his bride, and the church is his bride. And that's us. Now, how do we know it's going to endure? John describes it in Revelation. Matter of fact, it's near the end of Revelation. Revelation 19, starting with verse 6. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. All of history culminates with the union 
of Christ and his bride. Right there at the end of the book. So we need to understand this and how it impacts our perception of what's happening today. Because if this is true, then no legislation, no political movement, no other religion, no removing of the Ten Commandments from public places, no prohibition of prayer in the schools, no amount of political correctness, no amount of opposition will stop this from happening. God's already said this is how it's going to be. The church is not threatened. It may be weaned of those who are not truly saved. There may come a day when you and I are called to assemble together in secret because we're taking our lives and the lives of all the people around us in our hands. But my brothers and sisters, the church will be here when he returns. So we don't have to defend it. We don't have to protect it. All we have to do is be true to what we're called. So we see that God has authority over the White House, even over all leaders. I know that's tough, but it's what the scriptures say, isn't it? We just saw, it doesn't mean that God is responsible for the evil they do, only that they will answer to him, not us, him, and that he will somehow use even the bad things that they do in his plan to redeem his people and to bring glory to himself. And here's the key to this. God never asks us to understand this. He never asks us to have it make sense. He never says, gee, I hope this sounds like reasonable stuff to you. The only thing he asks us to do is accept it in faith. Why? Because he says it. Because it shows up in his word. He wants us to just believe it in faith. So his church, his church is not going away. He doesn't need our help to preserve it. We don't have to fight for it. All we have to do is be faithful to our calling. All we have to do is be faithful to the gospel. Now that, that leaves us with our original dilemma, doesn't it? Are we in a dangerous crisis or do we have before us a sparkling opportunity? You know what? You're going to have to answer that for yourself. I've just laid the evidence in front of you. You're going to have to make up your own minds on that one. But I will tell you this, much of what will influence your decisions rests on how you will respond to the results of this election. Either, either we accept the results and receive a blessing, either we accept the results and receive a blessing, or we side with whatever tremendously huge group of angry people gather on Wednesday morning. And we allow the rift between the two parties to fracture even further than it's already fractured. And I think that's the danger to our nation. So as you ponder that, 
I want you to consider something very carefully. Now, I'm going to ask you something that I always hated when a pastor would ask me to do, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. I'd like you to stand up. And I want you to just, right where you stand, I want you to pivot in place and look at the people around you. Just look at them. Don't be embarrassed. They're looking at you. You're looking at them. Is that awkward enough yet? <laughs> Have a seat. Sitting in the pews next to you, living in the house next to you, working in the office that you work in, walking down the halls at the school you go to, sitting in the classroom that you go to are Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, and whatever else there is out there. That's us. And let me tell you something. If you know, this is an important issue, I get it, but if you know Christ is your Savior, in an eternal sense, it doesn't matter a hill of beans. It doesn't matter what party you belong to. It doesn't matter what party you line up with if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior because we are all part of his body. We are all the bride. We are all going to be with Jesus Christ forever in heaven where there will never ever be another disagreement over politics. It's not going to happen there. It shouldn't happen here. So let's decide. Let's decide to walk in that beautiful unity that Scott taught us about. But let's do it on Wednesday in particular. Now let me address one more thing. Because I told you, accept the results and get a blessing. And I know the first time I had that thought, I said to myself, how can I possibly be blessed if that other person wins? That just doesn't look like a blessing to me. Jesus tells us how this can be a blessing. Here's the first step. Shows up in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, Jesus says, be a peacemaker. Paul, Paul tells us how to be a peacemaker. Peacemakers are blessed. Paul says, here's how you do this. And it's in Romans 12, starting with verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Keep that in mind. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we get the blessing? We make peace. 
We live in harmony. We live peaceably with who? With all, with everyone. Do that and we receive a blessing. But you know what? It, it's not going to be easy. Let's just be honest with ourselves. That's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. We have to work at it. Some participation is required. But what it means is this. I mean, we can boil this down to something very simple. We, we don't get angry with the results. We don't express anger over what happened. This means we treat both Democrats and Republicans and everybody else, listen, as more important than ourselves. We humble ourselves. We serve them. We wash their feet just like Jesus washed the feet of Judas, the one who would betray him in John chapter 13. We hold back those critical, angry words. We don't write that divisive Facebook posting, and we don't like the ones that our friends write. We don't tweet and retweet negativity and judgment. We look back and we remember the biblical narrative. We look at the ark of the New Testament. We see that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of the last week, at the beginning of Holy Week, as he was headed towards the cross, he didn't go to Pilate's governor's mansion. He went to the temple and he cleaned it up. He had come not to enact political reform. He had come to cleanse his bride. We think about all that. And regardless of who wins the election, we get down on our knees. And we ask God to first cleanse our hearts. We repent for any animosity and anger and bitterness that may have built up there. And then we pray for God to have his way with our leaders. And when we're done with that, brothers and sisters, we get up off of our knees and we step out into that lost, dark world and we share the gospel. We share that salvation is available to them, regardless of what party they belong to. And we know it's true because we have received it ourselves. We share grace. We share joy. We share mercy. As abundantly as it flowed to us, we allow it to flow through us and into them. Amen? Here's what we're going to do this Tuesday. Because we believe this is serious. We're going to open up the sanctuary. There's other things going on in town. That's good. There are prayer groups and all sorts of things meeting around town. But we're going to open up the sanctuary at 8 o'clock. Uh, so after you vote, I'm going to go vote before I come and unlock the church. Because I believe that God has put us in this system. He's given us a system to participate in. So after you vote, maybe before you vote, you come here you can pray. It'll be quiet. We'll have some soft music on. We'll pray with you. You can pray privately, whatever. The sanctuary's going to stay open all day long until 9 o'clock Tuesday night. So that's our part. I pray that you'll join us. I pray that you'll take this seriously. And I pray that even now as we prepare our hearts to approach the communion table, that we go to the Lord and ask him to have our way with us.